Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Brown, the host of the channel, currently a master's student at the University of Wyoming, studying cultural history focused on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kirsten Greer about her new book, Redcoats and Wild Birds, How Military Ornithologists and Migrant Birds Shaped Empire, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020 as part of their series on flows, migrations, and exchanges. Remapping Empire, Nature, and Scientific Inquiry Beyond the Simple Binary Exchange Between Periphery and and Metropole, Dr. Kirsten Greer demonstrates how ornithology, the study of birds, became entwined with tours of duty for for British military officers. A critical historical geography of empire, Redcoats and Wild Birds follows the travels and exploits of Captain Thomas Wright, Blakeston, Surgeon Andrew Leith Adams, Lieutenant Colonel Leonard Howard Lloyd Irby, and Captain Philip Seville Gray Reed to demonstrate how collecting avian specimens and documenting migratory patterns created a new 19th century British military officer archetype, the scientific war hero. The scientific and geographic knowledge that these officers produce represents a series of network networks, human and non-human, connecting people, birds, and places across and beyond the British Empire. These avian imaginations furthered the development of racist, nationalistic, and gendered ideas about particular places and climates. Dr. Kirsten Greer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Most definitely. Thank you for coming on. Um, so before we, uh, we dive into this, this wonderful book, uh, Redcoats and Wild Birds, I wondered if you could uh, begin by telling us a bit about yourself and, and your background. Sure. I consider myself a critical historical geographer interested, interested specifically on the 19th century British Empire and human environment relations in the past. And I, I guess to give a background of who I am, I grew up in Montreal, Quebec, 
and I've most of my degrees are in geography. I did my BA in geography at McGill University. And for those of you in um, doing environmental studies, the, you'll see how interdisciplinary my background is. But uh, when you do a geography undergrad at McGill, you, even though I specialized in human geography, I also did and continued on with physical geography as part of my training. And so from, from an early point in my career, I learned how to collaborate with the environmental scientists. And it was at, my, at the master's level where I learned about and was trained as a historical geographer by Jean K. Gelke, who was a feminist historical geographer. And she was at the University of Waterloo at the time. And that's who I trained with and who was my supervisor for my master's when I became interested in the histories of science and especially within the context of the 19th century and with birds. I did my PhD at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And I also, again, engaged in courses with physical geographers, but as well, I took history courses of the British Empire. And uh, I did a postdoc at the University of Warwick in, in England, and that was in a history department. So I have... Um, you know, I've done a lot of boundary crossing between disciplines throughout my training. And I also have worked in museums, and so I have a special interest in museum collections and working at the Royal Ontario Museum, specifically with the ornithological collection there, and also um, some smaller museums in Ontario. So thinking about using material culture as primary source materials in my own analysis and examination of the past and so that's a bit of my background. I'm right now currently at uh, university, the Nipissing University, which is located in North Bay, Ontario, Northern Ontario. We're about three and a half hours north of Toronto, and we're located on Nibizing traditional territory, and the, the land's protected by the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850. And I'm in both the geography and history departments at my university, and as well, I'm a Canada Research Chair in Global Environmental Histories and Geographies. Thank you so much for that 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 great great biography. I mean, it's it shows that the, reading this 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 book um, shows how much you cross the boundaries of of intellectual discourse between geography and and history, and then and then you know ecological thought. It's it, it it's it's very present throughout throughout this whole book. And and speaking of it, so um, you talked a little bit about kind of your your uh, your your career in terms of of how you got interested. But but were, was there a moment or how did you really come to this time period and, and, and really come to to establishing the, the different case studies that you, you go through throughout the book? It was during my master's when I was supposed to look at the impact of bird watchers on a provincial park, the economic and cultural um, impacts. And when I took my courses in historical geography with Jean K. Gelke, I became more interested in how did this become a recreational activity in at least British North America, Ontario, where I was living at the time. And that's where, going back in time, I did a lot of research on the early 19th century and noticed that many of the collectors that were here stationed as part of British North America, Upper Canada and Lower Canada 
at the time, which were British colonies, were collecting birds. And this really interested me because I know when doing the histories of science, especially during this time period, botany and geology were the primary um, subject matter that people at that time would be collecting for minerals and botanical specimens that um, you know could be used for medicinal purposes or bioprospecting. But I had always had this question as to why these officers were collecting birds if it was considered a non-instrumental science. And of course, in between degrees, I thought, okay, I'm finished school after my master's. I'm not, I'm not coming back. But I could not, uh, obviously, once you have the bug, it, you can't let it go. And so that's where, when I was working at the Royal Ontario Museum in the ornithological ornithology collection, I came across a painting that is now part of my book. It's the book cover that I chose. And the painting was of Cornelius Kriegoff's officer's room in Montreal in the 1840s. And if you look at the cover of my book, you'll see an officer, a, a British military red coat, sitting at his desk. And in his quarters, you'll see all these paintings of the different landscapes that perhaps he was stationed at uh, during his I guess, career as a military officer in different parts of the British Empire, you'll see that, you know, he has much of the beaded work that would have come with being stationed in a place like Montreal, uh, Quebec. And if you look closely at the painting, you'll notice that there are at least five different species of birds that are a part of his room. And you'll see, I think it's a blue bird, um, a blue jay, an osprey. There's a scarlet tanager that looks like it's in a little glass dome on top of the fireplace. Um, there's an owl, and I don't know what species of owl. And then you can tell that there's a, a wood duck. And again, I thought, well, I understand that, yes, they were collecting to keep themselves busy in these different places, but I'm wondering if there was something more to the collecting. And if these officers were stationed in different parts of the empire and moving, how did their circulations across the empire, their encounters with different environments and climates and um, local indigenous peoples, how did all of their travels and movements across empire shape their ornithological knowledge? And um, that's when I thought I I did want to pursue my PhD and the type of project that I, I was going to investigate. And I just happened to network with a, a UK scholar at the time. He was in historic, he was a historical geographer that was in the Department of Geography at Royal Holloway in England, David Lambert. And he just happened to be publishing with Alan Lester at the time, their book on um, Oh, the title right now, uh, but exactly conceptualizing what it means to be a transient um, colonial um, subject across empire and trans-imperialism and networks of empire, not just relationships between the core or metropole, such as Britain and the periphery and the colonies, but how do we conceptualize a, a career and a network that is you know between peripheries, n- not necessarily official British colonies, and the movements and the idea of how does place shape identity and knowledge. And it was through that uh, sharing of their work before it came to press that really solidified what I wanted to focus on. 
And I had to do a lot of background research in terms of the types of archive, archival materials and material culture that was out there, which <laughs> when you study the British Empire, it's expansive and it's fragmented. Um, but I focused mainly, mainly on the types of ornithological collections that still existed today that might have might be at the British, the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, their specimens at the Smithsonian, and just piecing together what I've called the Avian Imperial Archive through field journals, publications, photographs. I even happened to correspond with one of the family members of the officers that I studied. Read, uh, so they shared with me their private papers as part of this work, and you. <laughs> this is my imagination when I was figuring out. How, well, how do I narrow down my project in a four-year dissertation? And that's where I had in my office a map of the world, and I I literally did pin string between the movements of these officers and looking for sites of intersection. And that's where the Mediterranean became my focus for the work of being able to capture the lives of these men and um, in, in one analytical framework, as well as how the Mediterranean was so central in connecting Britain to its multiple peripheries. So that's how I <laughs> went down that rabbit hole. And when I used the Mediterranean as my heuristic device for my work, that's when I did not realize that the migrant birds were so central to this story as well, because when I was reading some of the field journals or publications, I noticed that these officers were very diligent about recording the comings and goings of their what they believed were their British migrant birds going to Africa and back, back home. And that, for me, was really interesting because then I realized, well, now they're starting to identify these birds as their own, as British. And what does it mean to be a British bird? And it was during this time period that they were starting to define what a British bird was. It was a bird that nested and raised their young in Britain, migrated, but then always came back home. And that really overlapped with the way in which these officers saw themselves because they were always you know, traveling to different colonies for their military service, but then coming back home. Um, so that's where, that was an unexpected theme of my book. And the under, other unexpected theme was the fact that these officers were collecting for a scientific reason. Per, and that all had to do with the field of zoogeography at the time, and that they were in, involved in the networks of uh, Wallace and a Sclater, who, who I focus on in the book as well. And those two men were the ones that devised the six zoogeographic regions of the world. And so I, I found out that my officers were actually contributing the bird skins, the bird um, type localities of these birds for Wallace and Sclater to actually determine the boundary line between the Paleoarctic and the Ethiopian zoogeographic line, which is like borders of the Mediterranean region. So, yeah, <laughs> that that's basically the way in which my work became solidified in this book. That's such a good answer. And, and there, there's so much here. Um, I, I really love how you 
have made the the birds not just kind of just the the material culture of it but you've made them a character within this 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 overall narrative and i was wondering if before we really get into into the the this this cultivation of of scientific knowledge and and zoogeography and and ordering ordering not not only the birds as as british kind of national uh symbols but also climate and 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 these temporal systems. I was I was hoping you would talk about your uh, your short avian uh, vignettes at the at the beginning of, of each chapter where you where you go into. I, I think the birds were the 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 great bustar, the the golden oriole in Gibraltar, the hoopoe in Malta, and the the all, all, the osprey in, in Aldershot. Like, what gave you the the idea of of, of presenting those little vignettes? Well, that emerged after my dissertation. My book is based on a four-year dissertation, and my focus was mainly on the agency of humans, Um, and that was done on purpose because I focus on histories of settler colonialism, of colonial violence, and, and the different projects of, you know, empire at the time, and I wanted to make sure that that was at the forefront. And the one thing that I wasn't able to do is to include the agency uh, of birds as much as I wanted to and to honor them. And I, I know my book took a little bit longer to to come into the book form after the dissertation, but that's when I started thinking about, well, how do I integrate the lives of birds into the, these stories? And I thought that short little avian being nights before each chapter of the men that I focus on would be a a good way of doing that. And so then I had to do more research to look at the species that were encountered in the Mediterranean, that perhaps other officers that are part of my story encountered them in other parts of the Mediterranean or back home in Britain. And so that's where the great bustard emerged. uh, And it's part of my Crimea chapter and I don't know. I became, <laughs> I, I really love the Crimea, the, sorry, the great bustard. If you, if anyone Googles a great bustard, you'll see they're, they're giant birds. And what I found fascinating is that the time period that I was looking at, they were becoming extinct in Britain at the time, but yet they were found in the Crimea region. And a lot of the British officers were stationed around the Crimea for the Crimean war. And, they encountered and collected the great bustard there. And I think the one of the most ironic parts was that even though they were espousing bird preservation back home in Britain, they were not only collecting the bustard in the Crimea, but they would <laughs> they would collect them to eat as well. And uh, that's when that whole idea of different cultures of nature emerged from my work, which was another, another unexpected finding because they – the officers I looked at really looked down on the Maltese and the Gibraltarians for eating songbirds and birds that, you know, were protected in Britain, but yet they were equally doing the same thing, either justifying it through science or, um, yeah. And then of course that that's how that all morphed into the whole idea of how a lot of these ideas still circulate today in terms of the politics of bird conservation in the Mediterranean. Uh, so the bustard, and then I love the hoopoe, which was in Malta. 
And I just wanted to honor, again, the lives of the birds that were killed in the name of science and that, you know, their, their agency and their presence in, in different times and places, you know, is equally should be honored as well. Yeah, certainly. And and, I mean, and it's, it's just, it's, I I think it is really important to decenter the human within our, our environmental and historiographical narratives as much as we can. And, and you did it so, so beautifully and, and, and well in, in this book. And so I, I really appreciate that. And let's, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Crimea, um, and, and, and maybe look at, at, at Captain, um, Lakiston, um, this is where you kind of bring in the idea of the scientific war hero. Do you want to talk more about this kind of new archetype? That emerged again because of my interest in museums and museum culture. I noticed by studying these officers that they were very much about collecting a, a, a variety of materials in the different colonies that they were stationed in as whether they were trophies, souvenirs. And I noticed, especially doing a lot of research on the Crimean War and how the British, you know, the, the press really went hard on, on the military in terms of how incompetent they were, that this new archetype of a scientific hero that uh, was being narrated not only in the collecting, but the collecting practices were being published in the journals that were being read back in Britain at the time. And that when the Crimean war was over, all this loot was brought back to England, uh, whether they were, you know, cannons and um, other war trophies that are still, they still exist in some of the museums in Britain or in England and Ireland and Scotland. But these specimens these bird specimens were equally described in the same way as, as a trophy of the Crimean War. And so that's how I conceptualized that chapter because it was a way of, I guess, glorifying that the British did do, like they did contribute to science and sci- it, within this, um, I guess, war front. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, and I was just going to say, like, it almost seems like there's a transition in in this second second half of the the 1800s, where with this with this new idea of like a scientific war hero, there is like adventure as well in in terms of going out and collecting. And and one of the pictures in your book showed, um, I, I think it was on on Gibraltar. I could be wrong about that, but he was climbing down to to check out a like an eagle's nest. Yeah, that's where I think the Crimean War and the what is called the first uh, the Indian Mutiny, but first War of Independence in India, really sh- captured and showed the vulnerability of Britain in the colonies and uh, ideas of masculinity. And it was, I believe, that was a turning point in how these at least these these group of men were trying to redefine themselves through you know, masculinity and exploration, um, you know, climbing mountains and really performing that type of masculinity. Right, right. And, and, and that's so, it's so interesting to, to think about how 
it was also a a civilizing project while they were doing while they were exploring it they were also bringing culture and civilization to to the colonies right yeah cool cool and 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 so moving moving to more of the 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 um the kind of mediterranean itself um you you talk in in chapter four about um Irby and 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 the idea of the the rock and how it did become an imperial and noble masculine masculine pillar of empire like how did like do you want to talk more about like the the masculine approaches of science sure i guess um that maybe the chapter before that can frame the Irby chapter where i looked at andrew lee's Leith Adams, who is a, a Scottish military surgeon who had been stationed in places like India and New Brunswick, British North America before being stationed in Malta. And, oh, that's that's the reason why I chose four different officers that were part of different regiments or training, but to show that there was a heterogeneity between like the collecting practices and identities. But the group of surgeons that I focused on were very much about collecting animals and just, and also human remains in different parts of the empire and making connections between the environment, such as climate on the human body or the animal body. And this is where I noticed that there were definitely the way in which they described climates was always within relation to Britain's temperate climate, which was cooler, and therefore people were more industrious and more masculine, and people that were found in tropical areas were lazier and um, uncivilized, and that the Mediterranean became this middle, middle point between the temperate region and the tropical region. And so semi-tropicality started to merge through the discourse that were, was very much linked to the animals and the people that were found in that region. And so therefore, Gibraltarians that had Spanish descent or Maltese were seen as semi-civilized <laughs> because of their placement in the Mediterranean. And this is where the racialized aspect of the work came in because the medical officers that I was focusing on the group, they were very much about the importance of white British military bodies moving and not staying too long in a tropical place or else they would degenerate. They would racially degenerate. So there is a lot of literature on the role of hill stations in India to mitigate, you know, the degeneration of the white body at this time. And so that's where the Mediterranean became the semi-tropical region for acclimatization of the body. And, um, and so then this morphed into the, the chapter that, that is after Andrew Leith Adams. And, you know, he, he, Adams was very much about racial hygiene. And so that's why the, the importance of movement, the type of clothes that you wore, and the activities that you engaged in. And so, again, ornithology became a rational activity that made sure that your your brain, you were using your brain when you're in these places so that you wouldn't, again, degenerate. And another racial or um, 
racial hygiene practice was again being outdoors and climbing mountains and so the rock of gibraltar i didn't realize the significance of the rock until i actually visited gibraltar because i don't know if anyone is who's listening has been to gibraltar but that rock is so significant mm-hmm. on the landscape and that's where irby really described his ornithological collecting practices of climbing that that uh, rock and if you think about it you know any royal navy ships or other countries that were using the mediterranean for you know through the suez canal that the rock of gibraltar stands there as this huge monument at the mouth not the mouth of the i know that's not <laughs> geographically correct to call it the mouth of the mediterranean but coming in from the atlantic ocean and how that rock was very much tied to british identity and it is still today and um so it used to be called Old Jib, but then the time period that I was looking at, they were really emphasizing the rock of Gibraltar, solid, and described much in the same way that Britain was viewed them or viewed itself geopolitically. Yeah, and there's almost like a, a, a like a aesthetic, like with like a Kantian sublime of of the rock being this, this this geographical feature that then you go and climb and you 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 dominate nature and it it just adds to that ethos right and it was up on top of that rock that that's where they would observe those the migratory birds and so there's some watercolors that I would have loved to include in my book but you, the you know my the officers I was looking at a lot of them also did watercolor watercolor landscape sketching and a lot of the landscape sketches include officers on the top of the rock looking at vultures and birds of prey. And so the whole, um, there's that expression, you know, the, the, you might be able to help, help me, but the, it's a, the eye of all seeing, you know, you're up on top, so you have a, a full view of everything below. Okay, right, right. Mary Louise Pratt writes about it. Okay. The eye of Uh, all seeing, or I forget the exact expression. But it's like the point that you, it's, you're, you're kind of seeing it from the top rather than, than looking up at it or, or, or something like that. Yeah. And you have control of everything that you're seeing. Okay. That's very cool. Um, And so like this, this kind of raised one question that I had. In, in terms of the different kinds of birds, because there's, you know, there's songbirds and there's birds of prey. Did they, and, and you've kind of, you've, you've alluded to it already with the, with, with the great, great Bastard, but um, like, did they have different, in, in terms of creating this, this symbolism for British nationalism applied to ornithology, like did each of these different birds have kind of different meanings in their, in their um, sensibilities? The one bird I would have liked to have written about as part of an evening vignette was Robin Redbreast, the the British robin, because the Robin Redbreast was found is found in the the Mediterranean, and obviously there's a huge connection to not British national identity at the time and its connect, the way in which that bird was described, and it was really interesting to see how the officers would describe Robin Redbreast in the Mediterranean. And how, again, I was liking the racial ideas of how white bodies would degenerate in tropical places. And apparently the robin redbreast would become lazier when it was found in the Spanish countryside or in Gibraltar. 
but it the officers I looked at were also instrumental, and that's why I ended my last chapter on Aldershot, which is the British military gar- garrison in Hampshire County, because my the officers would come back after their long careers across empire, and Irby and Reed specifically were very much involved in the designation of a British bird at the new Kensington location of the Natural History Museum in London, and they collected... British birds and put them in these uh, dioramas, glass cases with their nests and their eggs. And so they were very much about identifying what a British bird was. And that's what I was saying that it was all about making sure or not making sure, but that those birds would raise their young in Britain for a particular period of time, go away and then come back. They, they always came home. That's so interesting that 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 they the physical location is so so important within within this this idea of of empire. I mean, I, I it makes sense, especially if we we think about kind of the classical epistemy of taxo- taxonomy and and really dividing up the world in these in these separate separate uh, categories. Um, but but the fact that you you've been able to trace not only the human but the natural element to to this empire is is super intriguing and it's something that I had never even it really considered before. And I think because I guess the Aldershot chapter I start with Crimea, which is 1850s, and the Aldershot chapter is 1880s. Basically, you know, once these officers were back back in Britain and just to see the different the changes in field ornithology practices as well, because it was all about in the 1850s, not type specimens anymore. It was about the type locality. So these birds, it was really important to observe these birds over a period of, of years, you know, two, three years. That's why these officers gained authority in terms of their knowledge, because they would be stationed, let's say, in Gibraltar for five years before being sent somewhere else. And... The locality was key to the zoogeographic knowledge production because they were able to study the impact of the environment on a particular species. And so therefore, the even the labels and the type of information that they were recording at the time was changing and the importance of the date that it was collected, the actual location as specific as possible, the a description of the environment, you know, the where the bird was collected and the types of trees that were around, what the climate was or the weather was on that day. And if they were able to, to include a watercolor sketch of the landscape. And so then once I finished in the 1880s, the ornith- ornithological practices were, was more about behavior, studying bird behavior and nesting behavior and mating behavior and to be able to, I guess, life histories of the birds, right? Just how ornithology changed as a, a field over the of the course of 30 years by focusing on these officers and their, and their um, careers as military and orn- field ornithologists. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and in one chapter, I don't remember which one it was. It was early on, though. You do talk about the 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 presence of Darwin as well because at this same time you have new new developments in terms of understanding kind of the deep time and 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 going to to um where uh um Lyell was when when he 
he re, he he started his discussion on on fossils and then you have darwin with with the development of evolution and kind of this emerging idea of of ecology so you can see that in there as well right yeah and that 1850s to 1880s is a really interesting time period because there were opposing views on let's say the six geographic regions you had the polygenists that believe that each race was from those each separate zoological division, but people like Darwin and the influence of Darwinism on at least the officers I was looking at as well on monogenism that we all, that humans all come from one origin. And therefore that's when the idea of migration entered into my work, the importance of migration in these officers that as long as they continued moving and being active when they were, you know, in the colony, serving in the colonies, but not being in a tropical environment for too long, making sure that, you know, the Mediterranean is a semi-tropical acclimatization zone in terms of their movements from Britain to India or even Britain to the West Indies. Um, And that's where, you know, untangling all the different debates and understandings of, of, uh, I guess, evolution in terms of the human body was really interesting to look at and, and the racial, like how that, those ideas were then translated into ideas of human races. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. And then on top of that, you do, as, as you, as you noted before, you have also the, the British critique of how other, other peoples interact with the birds and, and, and they start criticizing the, I, cause you even say in the Crimea, Crimea chapter that they were criticizing the, the hunting of the, of, of, of some birds too. Right. Yeah. And, and then they were looking at the, the French and <laughs> making judgments about other European, uh, I guess, competing European empires and the way their, their pra- practices as well. Oh, interesting. That, <laughs> it's so funny. Um, and, and just such a, it's such an, a unique part of, of the empire building, but also is super important to how we understand um, our development, even as, as we move into the contemporary of how, how in the 21st century, we, we understand nature based off of these, um, these kind of intellectual genealogies that have been embedded in our our scientific thought of, of observation and imperial and empiricism and, and, and things like that. And, and that, that's one other question that I had was how, um, how did the public respond to all of this, especially in your, in, in chapter five, where, um, where you're talking about how they, they come home and, and they start contributing to, they start writing books and, and arranging these, these natural history museums and, and, and things like that. There was definitely a nostalgia. Again, I, I feel as though the nostalgia for birds, British birds really helped to erase the colonial con- connections and violence <laughs> that was ongoing at the same time. And maybe that's why there's been an erasure of the of those histories through when I was looking at when I visited Malta and what I picked up on when I was there. And um, 
it, visiting again, how important it is. And I'm lucky, very fortunate that I had the research funding to be able to travel to these places, but how important it is to visit these places that you're, you're writing about and studying. And I remember visiting Malta and standing at the bus station and just, uh, people were wondering, you know, what, what was I doing there? And, and then how, because Malta was a colony of Britain and had a, an important role in, in different moments of time for British, the British, especially during uh, World War II as well. But it was heavily bombed during World War II. And they just wanted to talk about how they had this ambivalence about their the British connection to Malta that, you know, Britain allowed and had, or I guess there were a lot of jobs when, when Britain had it as a colony. But then the the ambivalence that these Maltese had about the British occupation of their island and their culture. And it was when I was there, I found out that in terms of the Maltese bird hunting issue, it was 2009 that I was there and the EU elections were ongoing. And the number one issue that was on in Malta was the bird hunting issue because the, some Maltese believe that it's their birthright to be able to hunt songbirds, migratory birds, and uh, obviously the EU, being part of the EU, that's not allowed. And to see that a group of, again, I I am a bird conservationist, I love birds, but I could see how these old colonial histories were re-emerging through the conservation efforts of groups of British tourists, bird watchers descending on Malta every spring and fall to stop the illegal hunting of birds on the island. And that obviously has resulted in a lot of pushback and violence in in Malta. But I guess I wanted to include that as part of my book as a reflection piece on the importance of knowing the histories of colonialism in these places and that if you are a British bird watcher that you should know about these think these connections and why perhaps certain Maltese might not appreciate you showing up every you know migration season and you know not recognizing the the unequal power dynamics that resulted in the 19th century to when it was no longer a British colony and so that's why I wanted to reflect on on those past histories and the colonial afterlives of of some of the knowledges that were produced in the 19th century that still circulate today. Yeah, and I I mean it it really shows that it, it really shows that this is why you know history and understanding all of all of these these trajectories our own kind of temporal transients um, really, really is important for, for, for being able to navigate these, these very hard questions about what, how, how, how do we, how do we protect endangered species, but also respect traditions outside of the Western, the Western norm or something like the EU's nature conservation legislation. 
Um, so this is this has been such a conver- good conversation. Thank you so much for being on. And um, you know, we've we've taken up a lot of your time. But um, before we would go, you know, I'd like to ask you our our traditional final question for uh, for the New Books Network, and um, just find out what what you're up to now. Um, <laughs> I guess I could speak to the somewhat related projects to my my book where I looked at material culture and bird specimens as part of my work, but to push it further and think about repair work and in the types of research that I do and repair repairing relationships in the past, uh, repairing, you know, our ideas and relationships with communities that during this time period objects or you know human remains were taken without permission they were stolen and how do we engage in repatriation or acts of repair in in our own research and i work closely with in relationship with nipissing first nation and dokis first nation here in the region and researching the materials that would have been taken from their communities back in the 19th century that are now housed at museums and uh, identifying them and starting conversations about repatriation with these institutions. So there are two related projects. One has to do with human remains, the ancestors that were taken from this region that are now at the Chicago Field Museum. And they were taken for and put on display for the the Columbian World Exposition, the World Fair in Chicago in 1893 and connected to Franz Boas. So I'm doing research on the links between Franz Boas and his network of collectors in this region where he connected with the Indian agents of the region to find out where these human remains would have been found and brought back to Chicago. And this is what that's brought us into more colonial violence of this type of collecting because he also asked Indian agents and residential school missionaries to take measurements of the children's head at the same time. And I don't know if you know what's going on in Canada with all the bodies, missing bodies at the residential schools that are becoming unearthed and um, Canada really facing the histories of settler colonial violence through these findings. So there's that work that the human remains will be repatriated to this region by the Chicago Field Museum, hopefully with pending COVID by... um, October. And then the other project is called the Lake Nipissing Beating Project. There's a website that we've created for that. And this emerged out of dealing with isolation during COVID. In Ontario, we've been on three major lockdowns. We haven't been able to, I mean, we're not in lockdown anymore, but for a year, a good year, we haven't been able to congregate together and do research or even for myself, I haven't been able to go or I haven't been home to Montreal because the border was closed even between provinces, but we created a project that really spoke to the communities in self-isolation and beading is really important to Anishinaabe culture and art production. And so we created a beading project that kept people active and we're beading a five meter uh, reproduction of Lake Nipissing, which is where we're located. If you look at a map, you'll see Lake Nipissing on there. And using the beading project as a way of thinking of repatriation um, because we know we have a a lot of the animal species and plant specimens are also located 
in these museums. And so the artists we're working with, Carrie Allison, she's an indigenous artist. She also beads botanical specimens. And so thinking of repatriation in those ways uh, of the plants that are, were taken from this traditional territory that are now housed at, at uh, natural history museums. So these two projects emerged from, I guess, responding to the pandemic making sure that we were all okay on weekly Zoom meetings and then bouncing ideas around on what we could do in the next year or so when we can't travel to archives or museums or even travel to the States. So those are two projects that I'm working on right now that mean a lot to me. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. What is the, uh, did, you said you had a website for, for, for the bead project? It's called the Lake Nipissing Beading Project. If you Google that, it should come up. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm sure I'm sure you'll get get a lot of hits then, because that sounds like a awesome project. And thank you once again for for being on the show. And um, yeah, uh, goodbye. <laughs> thank you for having me. And it was nice to talk about my work. I haven't really talked about it in a while. So I, I love birds, and I I actually have a weird obsession with the actual bird specimens. <laughs> That, that's so good and and you know once again it, you can you can really see that in the uh in the book with all with all the wonderful illustrations you you provided for us and 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 just the uh just all of the background on the on the actual ornithology so so once again thank you uh thank you so much for for sharing your work okay thank you for having me yep